Well, we've been uh, reading this scripture together from Ephesians chapter 3 now for uh, a few weeks. And we're going to continue just reading this together as a congregation so we can try and learn uh, these verses. Uh, we're looking at Nehemiah in the Old Testament uh, where God's people are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But in the New Testament, we read of how God is building his church. And in Ephesians 3, we read the purpose of that. So let's read uh, these words together. Uh, and if you follow along uh, with me, um, hopefully uh, it will work like it has before. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, if you have uh, your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Nehemiah uh, chapter 5. If you haven't got a Bible, there are Bibles at the back there, the Green Church Bibles, uh, in which case please turn to page 487, where you will find uh, Nehemiah chapter 5. And I'm going to read uh, this chapter for us. So let's listen as we hear the word of God. Nehemiah chapter 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. And in order for us to eat and stay alive... We must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, Yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 
1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. This is God's word. Well, back in 2005, which when I was looking at this and it came to my mind, didn't seem that long ago, but actually it was quite some time ago now. On the 2nd of April, there was a Premier League game between Newcastle United and Aston Villa. Newcastle United lost 3-0 at home to Aston Villa. And this game is very famous, not because Aston Villa won, which today might be a surprise, Not for the score, not for any spectacular goals, but for this. Two Newcastle players during this game, Lee Bowyer and Kieran Dyer, had a fight with each other, and they were on the same team. At this point in the game, there wasn't much hope of them uh, recovering from the 3-0 deficit, but with this kind of thing going on, there was just no way... That, the, that things were going to go well for this team. And it does not help any team or any community, does it? Or any endeavor when the people involved in that team or community or endeavor are fighting each other. Now, in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, last time, there was an existential threat to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. 
And that threat came from the outside, from their enemies, and the call of chapter 4 was to stand firm when the battle comes. But in chapter 5, there is here another existential threat, not from enemies outside, but from internal strife, from fighting with each other. And we will see in this chapter that in order to succeed as a church in the work God has given us, we must stand together in unity. In chapter 5, there is internal division threatening the work of God. There are rich officials abusing their privilege so that the poor of that place were suffering. And the poor people's suffering meant that there was anger at the rich, but also they were unable or would be unable in a short space of time to continue with the work of rebuilding the wall because of the suffering they were undergoing. And this work of rebuilding the wall needed every member of this community to be working together. But a whole section was about to walk off the job. And tonight we're going to see the danger of internal division in the work of the church. And the specific division here is the lack of harmony between the rich members and the poor members of this community. And few issues really are as divisive as that of a disparity of wealth and income and or social background within a community. How do we counter this threat? That's the theme of Nehemiah chapter 5. And so we'll go over this chapter a section at a time, and we'll see how it does apply very much to us in our church today. The first thing that we see in this chapter is the abuse of privilege divides the people. We see that in the first five verses. Uh, In verse 1, we read of a great outcry, a great outcry. The same uh, words, uh, outcry, uh, occur in Exodus when the people cry out to God when they're slaves in Egypt. A great outcry goes up. And the seriousness of this outcry is shown in that it isn't just uh, the, the men that are crying out, it's the men and their wives. The men who are working on the wall and the wives also, they are all crying out. And they're crying out, we read, against their fellow Jews. Notice in verse 1 the word against. Notice the division there. It is against, not the enemies outside, but against their fellow Jews, against those that they are working with in building the wall. And there are three complaints from this group in this outcry. In verses 2 to 4, the complaints come from uh, some, then from others, and then from still others. So in verse, uh, verse 2, we read the first complaint. It says, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. So the complaint is, There is not enough food to eat. The harvesting would not have been going on because people were working on the wall. 
We looked last week at total war uh, that was involved in fighting against the enemy, but there was a, a total mobilization of the people of God on this work, and so the harvesting of the food would not necessarily have been going on, or at least not in the scale it was, and so the people were hungry. And so there's not enough food to eat. Uh, we'll see later on in, in verse 18, it wasn't that there was a lack of food in total, but the poor were not getting their share. In the second complaint in verse 3, we read, Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. So because the food wasn't being harvested in the same way, people would have to purchase food. And probably due to a lack of supply, the price of food was going up. And these people couldn't afford to buy the food, and so they would be mortgaging their fields and vineyards and their homes in order to eat. Now, many of us have gone through the process of a remortgage. Not many of us would have to do that to get our groceries, would we? But that was what was going on here. They were remortgaging their property in order to be able to just survive by eating. And the third complaint in verse 4 from still others, they were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Uh, The king's tax was effectively the Persian Empire poll tax. And since the workers, again, were working on the wall, they weren't working anywhere else, they weren't earning enough to pay the king's tax. And so, in order to, to pay that, which they couldn't get out of, They had to borrow money to pay that as well. So they were remortgaging their fields to buy food. They were borrowing money to pay the poll tax. And there wasn't even enough to eat anyway for them. And all of this was putting the poor into serious debt. And it was debt to their fellow Jews. So there were rich Jews who were lending money and no doubt buying property from the poor in order that the poor could eat. And the fact that this was, uh, they were borrowing from their fellow Jews is seen in verse 5. In this verse, we see how some even had to sell their children into slavery to pay the debts that they were building up. The children of the debtor would be taken in order to pay off the debt because they didn't have the money to pay the debt. And at the end of verse 5, we read of the daughters already being taken. That was a case of daughters probably being taken as second wives. So the situation is a bit like this. It wouldn't be like this today, but you can imagine it. If we're doing a work in our church, uh, I'm really rich. You've given up work in order to do this. You can't afford to eat. You come to me and you say, Steve, you've got loads of money. Can I borrow some money? And I say, well... I'll I'll, I'll take your house if you want, and I'll give you some money for that. And you come to me again, and you say, well, I've run out of money again. And I'll say, well, you can borrow some money. Well, then you can't pay it back. And I say, well, that that daughter of yours, you know, she she looks nice. I'll I'll take her. And that, that son of yours, he's a strapping lad. I've got lots of work going on in my big property. I'll use him for that going on in the community, you see? And to top it off, we read at the end of verse 5 that they were, the poor were powerless 
And they were powerless because they had no land, and so they had no other way of raising revenue. So it was a, a dire, terrible situation for them to be in. But the key to understanding this problem is in verse 5. Notice what they say in the middle of verse 5, or at the beginning in the middle of verse 5. Although we are, notice this, of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we're treated differently from everybody else. It seemed as if they were worthless in comparison to those who were rich. There was the, the exploitation of the poor was showing that there wasn't real unity in the community. There was rich and there was poor. There was influential and insignificant. There was the haves and the have-nots. There was the powerful and the weak. And the rich and the powerful and the influential were exploiting the others for their own gain. Now, it is true that we don't see these exact practices going on in our church today. As far as I'm aware, none of you have had to sell your child to another member of the church. But we do need to be aware of the internal threat to unity in the church from the disparity of wealth and income and background that does exist in our church. In Pelsall Evangelical Church, we do have people who are wealthy and people who are poor. We have people who are in high-powered jobs and people who are unable to work. We have people who are born in the UK and people who are born abroad. We have people who are educated at university and people who have not much education at all. And we are all under God and we know that we are the same under God. We believe the same gospel. There is not a different kind of membership depending on any of those things. We know what the Bible teaches about our equality under God. We know that none of these things should stop us serving in the church. But the threat is that we allow them to. Now, how might that happen? Now, I'm not saying any of these things do happen, but they might and they could. But you could, for example, have people who are rich trying to influence church decisions by letting people know how much they give and how important they are. That happens in churches today, doesn't it? We could look for positions of leadership only from those who have a certain education or speak in a certain way or dress a certain way or look a certain way. And we can think of some people who have perhaps not got a good education as being disqualified from any kind of leadership because, well, how could they possibly lead? They haven't got any qualifications. That could happen. Rather than looking throughout the whole church and looking at character for those who should be leading us, we could give an easier ride into church membership because of who someone's parents are, couldn't we? Regardless of perhaps their character or even their conversion. We could look at people from a quote-unquote rough background and think, well, they're really good for a testimony, but not really think they're much good for anything else. 
On the flip side, we could look at those who are rich and resent them, a little bit like we were talking about this morning, the comparison game, having no idea how generous they are with their wealth, but just resent them because they're richer than us. All of these are examples of how we can exploit, albeit not in the same way exactly as Nehemiah 5. We need to be aware of them. And we need to be aware also, even if we would probably never say those things out loud, whether we have those kinds of attitudes in our hearts when we look at one another. We can give lip service to unity but our actions and attitudes being very different. And the division that these attitudes cause threatens the progress and prosperity of God's work here in the church. And this is a very apt message for us at the moment, in, at this moment in our history as a church, because we are seeing so many different kinds of people coming through the doors every single Sunday. And it's wonderful We praise God for it, but it's a timely warning for us, isn't it? To not have these kinds of attitudes towards one another. So what do we do? Well, the next part of the passage tells us that it's the confronting of sin, and particularly this kind of sin. When we confront it, it leads to repentance. In responding to the great outcry, Nehemiah goes through Uh, some stages. He goes through uh, indignation, uh, contemplation, and confrontation. So in verse 6, we see he goes through indignation. Notice he wasn't just a little bit angry or a little bit put out. It says here he was very angry. And that's a good response to recognizing sin, isn't it? this This is a righteous anger, over the exploitation of God's people. It's exactly the kind of anger we see Jesus have in the temple, where in the temple where Jesus went, the people of God were being exploited as they were going to worship. The exchange rates at the money table were inflated and so on, and Jesus was very angry. That's the kind of anger we see here. Sin should anger us, not in a way that makes us uh, censorious or judgmental over everybody, but a righteous indignation at the treatment of the people of God. Seeing this kind of thing going on in a church shouldn't cause us to just shrug our shoulders and say, oh well, it doesn't matter too much. No, this makes people, in the case of Nehemiah, very angry. So he was, went through indignation. In verse 7, contemplation. His anger doesn't lash out. Notice in the beginning of verse 7 how he, he contemplates. Uh, we read there, Uh, I pondered them in my mind. The King James Version has this lovely little phrase, I consulted with myself. Now, sometimes talking to yourself is weird. uh, But in this case, having a conversation with you before you lash out, having a conversation with yourself in your anger is a good thing, isn't it? And here he contemplates, he thinks. And later on, we'll see how he thinks about his own involvement in this. So when we're uh, thinking about other people's sin, we need to also consider ourselves and our own ways. And then at the end of verse 7 and into verse 8, there is confrontation. He accuses the nobles and officials of charging interest to their people. 
And charging interest was forbidden in God's law. Charging interest to one another as the people of God. Uh, I'm not going to read the, the places here, but in places like Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 23, we see how in those chapters, charging interest to one another was forbidden. You can lend money, but not charge interest. Interestingly here, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for interest may also mean that when they were taking property, like the mortgaging, uh, they were keeping hold of the property that was supposed to be given back later and keeping all of the proceeds from that land for themselves. Either way, this was something that was forbidden. And furthermore, Nehemiah says in verse 8 that, that he's trying to redeem Jews who are sold into slavery to foreigners, but they end up being sold into slavery again by their fellow Jews. And this again is forbidden in God's law. Someone was allowed to sell themselves into slavery, but they couldn't just be uh, carted off. And we know that this was a very wrong act because at the end of verse 8, they have nothing to say. I love that phrase. It's like when I remember when I was a child and I'd get caught out red-handed doing something wrong by my parents. And oftentimes I'd want to defend myself, but sometimes <laughs> there's just nothing you can say. It's like, yep, that was me. And that's what's going on here. There's nothing they could say. They were absolutely caught. And so in verse 9, having been aware of their sin, Nehemiah begins to explain what repentance looks like. He says, what, they are, what you're doing is not right. He says it's an insult to God. And it makes a mockery of our testimony. Notice in verse 9 how he explains that the enemies will look at this behavior and they'll think the Jews are just like everybody else. They're no different from any other nation. And isn't a church that has a lack of unity such a poor testimony? Who would want to join a church like that? We live in a world that's divided on all sorts of different things. And when they come into the church, they should see a group of people who in the world would be divided over all sorts of things, but we are united in Christ. That's an amazing testimony. But the opposite is true. When the world looks at the church that is divided, it sees a church that is no different from anywhere else. And so Nehemiah says in verses 10 and 11 what repentance looks like. In verse 10, he says that he and his brothers and his men lend money, but stop charging interest. Repentance means stopping something. Stop. Stop charging interest. But in verse 11, repentance means doing something. He tells them to give back what you have taken. Give it back. Give back the property, give back the proceeds that you've been keeping, keep, give back the interest you've been charging, give it all back. This is uh, the, really the doctrine of restitution. If you are able to make right what you've done, repentance is more than just saying, I'm really sorry, it is giving back. It is, is making it right where you can. Sometimes we're unable to make things right, but in this case, they could do something about it and give it back. 
So repentance is a, a turning about from sin to God. It's stopping and it's starting. And in verse 12, the people do it. They, they take an oath and they do this so that the rich are held accountable publicly for what they say they're going to do. It's a public commitment. It's a bit like um, a, a, a wedding vow in that regard. We give wedding vows publicly because we want everybody to hold each other accountable to keeping those vows. And here it's the similar kind of thing. And then in verse 13, they have this strange uh, kind of uh, uh, ceremony, uh, which was a, a cultural thing of the day. They, 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 they would keep things in the folds of their robes, uh, a little bit like we might keep things in a bag. And the equivalent for us of this ceremony was, would be me getting a bag in the front of the church and tipping all the contents out on the floor. Uh, but here they, 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 they tip everything out of the robes of their garment. And the sign uh, Nehemiah explains is that um, so may such a person be shaken out and emptied if they don't keep the promise. So it's a, a, a public ceremony that says what will happen if you break this oath. And what will happen is you will lose the blessing of God. And a church who has this kind of sin and disunity going on in its midst will lose God's blessing upon it. It will. So the people agree to the repentance and at the end of verse 13, they give a very uh, hearty amen to what Nehemiah has said. Uh, for those of you that don't know, and it's a good place to, to mention this, when we say amen after a prayer, what we are saying is, may it be so. We are agreeing with what has been prayed. It's not just some traditional tagline, it has a meaning. May it be so. And they are saying, we agree, Nehemiah, with what you have said. There are times in the life of a church where sin must be publicly addressed, aren't there? It's easy to sweep sin under the carpet. We've got to have the courage to confront it. And perhaps tonight, some of those attitudes that are linked to, to wealth and income and status are in your life. It's a good opportunity tonight to examine your own heart. When you see someone come through the door, or you see someone sitting around you that is very different to you, what is your attitude? If it's an attitude that is like we see here in Nehemiah 5, where you look down, you, think, you, you, you would think that they wouldn't be any use to God, or you resent them in any way, it is not right. It is not right. It does not fear God, and it is a poor testimony. Well, after the Amen, we see from verses 14 to 19 an example of a better way to live in God's community. And this better way is living in the fear of God. Uh, notice the phrase, the fear of God. It appears twice in this chapter. Uh, it appears in verse 9 when he says, shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And it appears again in verse 15, but the NIV translates it as reverence for God. 
But the Hebrew word is the same in both verse 9 and 15. So it could be translated in both the fear of God. Now, when we read about the fear of God, what it means is an awareness of God's majestic presence and then living in the light of it. So if you, when we fear God, we're aware of the greatness and the glory of God's presence and we live in the light of that glorious presence. And in both phrases, both times it's used in Nehemiah chapter 5, we see that the fear of God results in generosity. So in verse 9, when it speaks there of the fear of God, it's saying, if you fear God, you won't exploit people for your own gain. So in other words, if you fear God, you won't live like this. But in verse 15, we're reading, because Nehemiah feared God, he was generous. So it's what fearing God doesn't do and what fearing God does do. And if you think about it, logically, if we are living in the light of God's glorious presence, we fear God, and we know that God is a God of abundant and abounding generosity, which he is, isn't he? Then we are going to be generous people, aren't we? Because we're living in the light of the presence of a glorious, generous God. And so in these verses, we see how because Nehemiah was a man who feared God, he was generous. In verses 14 to 16, we read what Nehemiah did not do because he was generous. He did not enrich himself at the expense of others, even though he was entitled to do that as the governor. So in verse 14, he was the governor for 12 years, but in that time, he did not take advantage of the free food available to him. Now, this is not to say that free food is always bad. Sometimes free food is very good. But the free food he would be taking here would be at the expense of his people. And in that case, it would be bad. So if I was to have a, I don't know, as, a, as, a, as an employee of the church, a food allowance, which we don't get and we don't really need. But if I was to get a food allowance, and in order for us to take that food allowance, some of you had to go hungry, it would be right that I forego that food allowance. You see? And that's what Nehemiah was doing. He did not take the food that he was entitled to. And in verse 15, he didn't act like previous governors in doing that very thing, in taking food and wine. But the reason the other governors before him would take the food and wine is because it enabled them to live the life of luxury that a governor ought to live. But the life of luxury was a heavy burden on the people. And so he didn't do it. At the end of verse 15, it also says how the governors before him had assistants who would have basically been tax collectors who lorded it over the people. But Nehemiah wasn't like this. At the end of verse 15, he says, but out of reverence or out of fear of God, I did not act like that. He didn't do that because he feared the Lord. Because it's God's people who are burdened and so God would be dishonored. Instead, his focus wasn't on the free food. His focus was on the work of God in building the wall. In verse 16, uh, it, it says that he, 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 he and his men, their focus was building the wall. So verses 14 to 16 says, generosity means not doing 
something. In this case, not taking advantage of people. But in verses 17 to 19, notice this is what Nehemiah did do because he was generous. He used his money to bless others. So in verse 17, uh, 150 Jews and officials ate at his table as well as foreigners. So as the governor, uh, one of his roles would be to host Lots of people, the heads of families, foreign dignitaries, and so on. And they would come and they would eat at his table. But his table must have been a lot bigger than mine. Because in verse 18, look at what every single day they would eat. I mean, what made made me smile when I first read this, it says, uh, each day, one ox, so he has a whole cow, six choice sheep, and poultry, were prepared for me. (laughs) Can you imagine that? What do you want for dinner, Nehemiah? A whole cow, six sheep, and a chicken. But of course, it wasn't just for him. It was in order that he could entertain others and bless them with food as well. And what's interesting is um, it says 150 Jews and officials. So I'm inferring from that that it wasn't just the highfalutin Jews that sat at his table, but lots of Jews every day would come and eat with him. Now, this would have been expensive because he had the cow, the sheeps, and the chicken. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine would come to his table. This was a very expensive undertaking, wasn't it? You think teenagers are expensive to feed? They don't eat even this much. But this was every day. But Nehemiah, he didn't take the food, it says at the end of verse 18, allotted to the governor. So he paid for this himself. Which means two things. Nehemiah must have been a very rich man himself. But Nehemiah was a man who had wealth but wealth did not have him. You see? Being rich is not wrong, but when riches have you, then it's an idol, isn't it? Nehemiah was a rich man who used his riches and his wealth to bless others. He must have had a very big table, but he used that big table to bless others. And there are examples in the New Testament of people like Lydia and and Dorcas in the book of Acts using their material resources to bless the church of Jesus Christ. And of course, this is a very New Testament principle. We see in the New Testament uh, verses like this. I'm not going to actually read them all uh, for for time's sake. You can note the references, but the, the, the call to generosity is a very Christian call, isn't it? Why? Because we also are those who fear God, and in fearing God, we are living in the light of a generous God who has been abundantly generous to us. And God entrusts all of us with a certain measure of wealth so that we can bless others and help his work to thrive. And this isn't only talking to the rich, by the way. If we fear God, we are generous with what we have, however small that may be. When me and Paula uh, one time 
uh, went to a wedding in Romania. We stayed with a very poor lady who was very generous with what she had. She blessed us with her generosity, even though she didn't have much to give. The fear of God results in generosity because we live in the presence of a generous God. And that generosity of God was shown ultimately, wasn't it, in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for our sins and give us eternal life. How can we, as God's people, claim to be children of God and claim to fear God and claim to love him and not be generous in turn? Would generous be a word that describes you? If not, it should be. Well, in verse 19, Nehemiah prays for God to remember him with favor. He's not there asking God uh, something along the lines of, God, you know, I've given you this, uh, therefore you need to give me that. But rather, Nehemiah is seeking the pleasure of his heavenly Father, which comes through the care and the unity of God's people. He's asking God to remember him with favor because he's seeking a greater treasure than material wealth. He's laying up treasures in heaven. And laying up treasures in heaven comes through radical generosity that brings God's people together and is an amazing witness to our world. Brothers and sisters, let's be a church who is generous. And may that generosity, as we share with one another, be an outworking of our unity. And ultimately, may that unity and generosity be an outworking of the living in the fear of the generous God who has loved us so much. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we take this warning very seriously. We are ever so aware of how the enemy wants to bring disunity in our number. And we are aware, I'm aware, how I can easily be part of that. All of us can. May we be different. May we be people like Nehemiah here who bring each other together and are generous. And we thank you for your generosity to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our final song is a song that speaks of uh, the unity we have as God's people. We're going to stand together and respond to these words by singing, Blessed be the tie that binds.
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen.